I'd like to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever met anybody who changed your life? Let me qualify that. Have you ever met anybody who changed your life for the better? When I was 17 years old, I met someone who was well-known. In fact, this person was famous. One afternoon, my dad asked me if I wanted to meet this man in person, Muhammad Ali. Now, you need to understand why this was such an incredible opportunity. My dad was a huge boxing fan. Every weekend, he would watch the Friday night fight of the week, and I was a little kid at the time, and he would let me stay up late and hang out with him and, and watch boxing. And so when he called me one afternoon and said, hey, you want to meet Muhammad Ali? I thought he was joking at first, but it soon became apparent that he was serious. And so I got in my car, I drove to downtown Miami to a restaurant, and we both had the opportunity to meet the champ in person. I, I was joking with some people on the worship team <clears throat> between services that I wish I had photoshopped myself in that picture, you know, there in the ring. But it was a chance to meet the champ, and I remember... All these people were in line, and I was getting closer and closer, and there were these two bodyguards standing next to Muhammad Ali, and he was a big guy. He was like 6'3", 6'4". They were bigger. And so it's finally my turn, and he reaches out his hand, and I said, hey, champ. And I still remember, it's like my hand got lost in the handshake because his hand was so big and so strong, and I thought to myself, I never want this guy to hit me. Now, I'll tell you this, meeting Muhammad Ali was really, really cool, but it didn't really change my life. However, when I was 17, there was a young lady that I knew. In fact, I had met her several years earlier, and boy, has she changed my life for the better. She was cute, she was funny, she was smart. I loved to talk with her and hang out with her, and three years later, when she was 19 and I was much older, 20, we got married, and my life has never been the same since. So let me ask you this. Have you ever met anybody who changed your life for the better? Now, I see some of you pointing to your spouse. That's a good thing. That, that's great. You're encouraging them. Um, you know, it could be the person you're married to. It could be a parent or a child or a friend or a coworker or a coach. God brings people into our lives that really influence us. However, this morning... I want us to think about someone who has changed the lives of countless people on this planet. In fact, he is the focal point of human history. And in just a few weeks, over a billion people around the world will celebrate a holiday that recounts an event in his life that changes everything. On Easter, we're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the opportunity that he gives us to live an entirely different kind of life, a life of, of purpose and power and peace. Today we are continuing the series called The Road to Easter, and today we're going to consider what happens in your life when you meet Jesus and decide to follow him. So here's what I want to do. I want us to look at some of the people who were there when Jesus was carrying out the greatest rescue mission the world has ever known. And here's the question I want you to consider. This is on your outline. What happens when people meet Jesus at the cross. I mean, how does that experience change their lives? And how does that experience change our lives? What happens when we meet Jesus at the cross? So let's begin with this verse that comes from one of the biographies of Jesus in the Bible. This is from the Gospel of John, who was Jesus' best friend. And this passage tells us who was there 
when Jesus was on the cross. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women are mentioned in this verse. And in another passage in Luke, we discover that there are a number of women who traveled from town to town with Jesus and his disciples. In fact, they supported Jesus and his disciples with their own money. And one of those women who traveled with Jesus and his disciples was Mary Magdalene. And the Bible tells us that she was a woman from whom Jesus had cast out seven demons. Now, we can't imagine what her life was like, but obviously before she met Jesus, this woman was a, a spiritual and emotional train wreck. I mean, she was in, in bondage and she had no hope, but then everything changed the day that she met Jesus Christ. And this is really remarkable. If you think about the story of her life, and she meets Jesus, she begins to follow him around, she listens to him teach, she is there when he dies on a cross, and she's also the very first person to whom Jesus appears after he is risen from the dead. Now here's what I want us to see from her life, this first principle. At the cross, we find redemption. At the cross, we find redemption. At the cross, we find a second chance. That was true for Mary Magdalene, and it's also true for us. Because Jesus takes us from guilt to grace. He takes us from failure to freedom. There's a beautiful verse in the book of Ephesians, and this is what it says in the message translation of the Bible. It says, in Jesus Christ, we find out who we are and what we're living for. Think about that. It's in Jesus that we find out our true identity and our purpose in life. I remember hearing a story one time about Abraham Lincoln, and this is during the days of slavery in our nation. And Lincoln actually saw this auction in progress. There was this young woman who was being auctioned to the highest bidder, and of course she knew that whoever bid the most money was going to take her home, and she would become this person's property. And Lincoln actually joined in the bidding and outbid everybody else. And so he walks over to this young woman and says, listen, I, I paid for you, for this reason, I want to set you free. And she said, I'm really free? He says, yeah, you're free. She said, am I free to say anything I want to you? And Lincoln said, yeah, you can say anything you want. She said, am I free to be who I want to be? She goes, he goes, yeah, you can be who you want to be. And she says, well, am I free to go anywhere I want to go? And he says, yes. And with tears streaming down her face, she said, well, then I think I want to go with you. Friends, the Bible says that while we were still slaves to sin, while we were still slaves to fear, Jesus died for us. He exchanged his life for ours. That's what it means to be redeemed. And the soul that's redeemed says, Jesus, I want to go with you. Jesus, I want to live for you. At the cross, we find redemption. And here's something else we find at the cross. At the cross, we find relationships. Now, I'm going to tell you about someone, um, and I want you to guess their identity. See if you can guess who I'm talking about. Are you ready? Okay, if you know, you can just yell it out. Here we go. This person, this is a man, was an enduring icon of American culture who first appeared on a radio show in 1933. He was also the star of a TV series that ran from 1949 to 1957. His character appeared in comic books, and several movies, including one made in 2013. 
Okay, let me show you a picture that will really help. This is from the movie. Who is it? Okay, it's the Lone Ranger and Tonto, played by Johnny Depp. Now, when I was a kid, I was enamored with the Lone Ranger. I had this Lone Ranger outfit. I mean, I was the Lone Ranger. But, but here's the deal. Some of you may not know the story about the Lone Ranger. He was part of a group of Texas Rangers, and they were ambushed by some outlaws. And all of them were killed except for one lone survivor. And Tonto, the Indian scout, comes on the scene, and he finds everybody dead except this one guy. And Tonto recognizes this man as someone who saved him when they were both children. And Tonto takes the Lone Ranger, nurses him back to health, and together they pursue these outlaws in order to bring them to justice. Now, over the years, the Lone Ranger has become the symbol of rugged individualism. I mean, he is a guy who can just handle anything. He can face adversity and danger on his own, even though he usually has Tonto along with him. And I remember growing up and thinking, man, I want to be like the Lone Ranger. I want to be able to take care of myself. And that perspective was strengthened by some things that happened to me in my childhood. Um, I was deeply hurt by some things that took place. There were people who left my life. And I decided, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like the Lone Ranger. Some of you may know the song by Paul Simon. I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. That was me. And so as I was growing up, I decided, you know what? I'm just going to be the Lone Ranger. And then I discovered that's not how God wants us to live. God does not want us to go through life disconnected from other people. He doesn't want us to face adversity and problems and pressure all alone. And this is so powerfully demonstrated at the cross. Now, as Jesus is laying down his life, he looks at the people who have gathered around him, and this is what the Bible says. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's a reference to John, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. Church, we need to remember that Christianity is not just about believing. It's about belonging. And the fact is that you cannot accomplish God's purpose for your life alone. You need other people in your church family. And that's why the Bible refers to the church as the body of Christ, because just like the parts of your body work together, just like the parts of your body need each other, we need one another. Look at this verse from, from Romans. It says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And notice this last statement. And each member, what's that next word? Belongs to all the others. At the cross, we find redemption, and at the cross, we find relationships. And thirdly, at the cross, we find responsibility. We find responsibility. I think it's absolutely remarkable that as Jesus is, is suffering in ways that we can't even imagine, he looks out and sees his mom, and he wants to make sure that she is cared for. And so he turns to John and says, here's your mom. And to his mom, here's your son. And you think about what that teaches us, and I think it's simply this, that we are responsible for one another. In God's family, we have the privilege and the responsibility of taking care of one another. 
You know, on a regular basis, I have conversations with people in our church that, that go like this. Hey, Pastor Dudley, um, can you please call so-and-so? They really need some encouragement. Here's their cell number. Um, Pastor Dudley, could you please go visit so-and-so in the hospital? I mean, they'd really love to have somebody stop by and pray with them. Hey, Pastor Dudley, could you? And you got, get the idea, right? Oh, here's the deal. I would love to go by and visit people in the hospital or call people on the phone, but I'm not the only one who can do that. And neither is Pastor Phil, and neither is our staff. Here's the thing. We are all given the privilege and responsibility of caring for each other. Let me ask you this. How many ministers do we have at BBCC? Who knows? I don't even know. Hundreds. Now, do you think of yourself as a minister? Because often people don't. If you're a member of our church, if you're a Christian, you're a minister because a minister is simply a servant, somebody who cares for other people. So listen, if you've never realized this, I release you to care for each other. I want you to care for each other because that's how the body of Christ is supposed to work and that's something we learn at the cross. It's a place we find redemption. It's a place we find relationships. It's a place that we find responsibility for each other. And the cross is also a place where we find purpose for our lives, but to carry out that purpose, we need power. How many of you would like to have more power in your life? I think we all would. And the cross actually strengthens us in a number of ways, and I want to point those out to you this morning. First of all, the cross strengthens our confidence in God's love. Strengthens our confidence in God's love. Look at this Bible verse. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How many of you have ever heard this statement or maybe you read it someplace? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Ever heard that? Ever read that? You know what the problem is? There are times when we doubt that. God, if you really love me and had a wonderful plan for my life, why do I have cancer? God, why can't I have a child? God, why does my friend have this incurable disease? God, why were they killed in the auto accident? God, why were the students shot in the high school? God, where were you? I mean, if, if it's true in this book that you're an all-loving, all-powerful God, then why is there such evil and pain and suffering in this world? Have you ever wondered that? I think that's a question we all ask. It's been asked since the days of Adam and Eve. And I remember when I was in, in graduate school studying to be a pastor. I took classes. I wrote papers on the problem of evil and suffering. And I've come to this conclusion. There are things that I just don't know about God and how he works out his purposes in this world. But I do know this, that when God saw the mess that we had made of his world by our sinful and selfish choices, God didn't step back. He stepped in. He became one of us. He suffered along with us. He suffered for us, and he came to suffer so he could put an end to our suffering. And so, church, listen, when you, you feel those, those doubts about God, that he loves you, that he cares about you, that he's really in charge, look at the cross. Because at the cross, we see a struggle between good and evil. We see a struggle between hope and despair. And at the cross, we see that love is so powerful, the love of Jesus is so powerful that it crushes evil. His love is so powerful that it lifts people out of despair. And his love is so powerful that it creates faith in our hearts that enables us to trust God 
completely with our lives. Now, just to show you how practical this is, how many of you worry? Listen, I know I'm not the only one. Come on. We all have this tendency to worry, right? And the reason we worry is because we don't think we're going to have what we need. I'm not going to have the money I need or the wisdom I need or the patience I need. Let me show you a Bible verse that really is the antidote to worry. You might want to write this down. It's Romans 8.32, and it says this. I want you to follow the logic in this verse. He, God, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Now, do you see the reasoning there? What's the greatest need that we have? It's the need for a Savior. God provided the greatest need. He gives us Jesus as our Savior. And it says, well, if he did that, don't you think he'll give you everything else you need to accomplish his purpose for your life? And see, if we really believe that, it keeps us from worry because it bolsters our confidence in God's love. Now, let me point out another way that the cross strengthens us. The cross strengthens our conviction of sin, our conviction of sin. There was a, a Sunday school class, and the teacher had a, a group of third graders, and she asked this question. She said, class, what's the first thing you have to do um, for God to forgive you? And one little boy raises his hand and says, you have to sin. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, you have to sin so you can experience God's forgiveness. Now, here's the deal. We don't have any trouble with that, do we? Comes quite naturally. Now, I want to show you something this morning that I think is so important to understand. It's a, it's a distinction between being condemned for sin or being convicted of sin. Now, look at this verse. It's from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is referring to Christians, that you are no longer condemned by God. Now, think about this. If somebody commits a crime, let's say it's, it's a really serious crime, they kill somebody, and they go to court, they're found guilty, they're put on death row, we say that that is a condemned criminal, right? We use that word, condemned. That's because they're awaiting punishment. They're awaiting justice for the crime they've committed. Well, the Bible tells us some really, really bad news about the whole human race. It says that every single person who's ever been born is condemned. Whoa. What does that mean? Well, we're awaiting punishment. We're awaiting justice. Why? Because every single one of us from the days of Adam and Eve have sinned. We've broken God's law. And what happens when you sin is that it separates you from God. It fractures the relationship. And because God is just, he has to punish us. Now, the Bible's real clear about the punishment. It says that punishment is to die and to be separated from God forever. And so apart from God doing something, we're all under this this death sentence, if you will, and there's nothing we can do about it. And so God does something for us because of his great love. God provides someone to take the punishment for us, and that person is who? Who is it, church? We can say it, that means it's Jesus. And listen, the, the gospel, the bad news and the good news of the gospel is, is the center out of which we live. Because You've heard me say this so many times, but it's so important. You can't understand how good the good news is unless you understand how bad the bad news is. And the more you understand that, the more joy you have in understanding the incredible love that Jesus has for you. The, the love that, 
that caused him to leave his home in heaven to become a human being, to live a perfect life? To lay down his life on a cross so that he could die in exchange for us? That's what happens on the cross. That Jesus takes our sin upon himself. But this also happens at the cross when you trust Jesus. God gives you the perfect record of his life. When you decide to follow Jesus, when you say, okay, I get it, God. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I believe Jesus died and rose again. I'm going to follow you. You get the record of Jesus Christ. So when God looks at you, it's as if you have never sinned. I mean, that's an amazing thing. And if you do, well, let me ask you this. When you become a Christian, do you continue to sin? How many of you sinned this past week? If you didn't raise your hand, you just sinned. Okay? <laughs> Proves my point. Here's the deal. We're all sinners, but it says that when you're a Christian, you're a sinner saved by God's grace. So God no longer condemns you for your sin. Why? Because there's no punishment awaiting you. Because Jesus has taken the punishment on himself. But does God convict you when you sin? Absolutely. Why? So that you can get back on the path that he has for you and for your life. And here's what's really fascinating. When you look at this historically, um, during the days that America was becoming a nation, this is years before the Revolutionary War, there was this incredible revival that took place. And again, it happened in the early 1800s. It was called the Second Great Awakening. And do you know it precedes every revival? Conviction of, conviction of sin. People begin to understand that sin is serious and they cry out to God for forgiveness. And what happens in revival is that it doesn't just affect somebody's relationship with God, it affects relationships with other people. It affects husbands and wives and parents and children and friends and neighbors. That's what happens in a revival. In church, we should continually pray that God will bring revival to our nation. And you've heard me say this before, that revival doesn't start in the White House, it starts in God's house. Remember a story about this guy who came to his pastor and uh, he said, well, pastor, I get it. I should pray for revival. But I don't know how to do that. Can you give me some, some tips? And the pastor said, yeah, I'll give you a tip. He said, just take a piece of chalk and draw a circle about six feet in diameter and then stand in the middle of it and pray for God to bring revival to everything in that circle. Because where does revival start? starts in our hearts and then it spreads outward. I suppose that all of us are familiar with the letters PC. What does that stand for? Politically correct. Now, you know, in our culture, sin is often downplayed. And I want to just share with you a couple of politically correct terms for sin. Here's one. Sin is the state of being ethically non-enlightened. Seriously? Or you may feel, <laughs> this, I, I quoted this one. It says this, or you may feel more comfortable referring to a sinner as one who is spiritually challenged. So for all of you spiritually challenged people like me, here's the deal. It doesn't matter how you dress it up. Sin is sin and sin is serious. And if we tend to doubt that, here's a verse we need to read. It's about Jesus. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and listen to this, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, just as we need to remember that sin is serious, we need to rejoice in the freedom of forgiveness. Look at this verse. It says this, 
Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord, listen to this, will never count against them. Is that good news or what? Our sins will never be counted against us. And here's, here's something else, and I wish I had just a lot of time to talk to you about this, but it's, it's so important. The longer you walk with Jesus, the greater your sensitivity to sin should become. You know, there are times in my marriage where I'm just being selfish or stubborn or I'm just wrapped up in my own little world and not thinking about my wife, Chris, and her world. And God will, it's almost like he taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, what are you doing? What are you thinking? You know what he's doing? He's pointing out sin in my heart. Now, I have a choice at that point, right? Excuse me, God, I'm busy. Could you remind me an hour later? It's like the prompts on your computer. <laughs> remind me tomorrow. Or I can say, God, you're right, you're right. And I can confess that to God and do something about it. And see, the more I obey the prompting of God's spirit, the more sensitive my heart becomes to sin in my life. And that's exactly what God wants. And think about this. This is a huge topic. We could spend a lot of time on this one too. But think about forgiveness. What is it that really enables us to forgive? And I believe it's simply this, understanding and appreciating how much we've been forgiven. Because when we understand what Jesus has forgiven us and how much it costs, it gives us the desire and the ability to not only forgive others, but to even forgive ourselves. Let me point out one more thing. The cross strengthens our compassion for people. The cross strengthens our compassion for people. A few months ago, at the beginning of flu and cold season, my wife, Chris, told me about something called elderberry syrup. How many of you have heard about elderberry syrup? Okay. Um, she was telling me that, you know, if you, if you drink this stuff every day, it will help you not catch the flu. In fact, and she showed me some research, elderberry syrup actually kills like 10 strains of the influenza virus. And so, man, religiously every day, we started taking this elderberry syrup, and for the last three, four months, we have found freedom from the flu. But here's the deal. Some of you are smiling because you've heard me talk about elderberry syrup because I am now an ambassador <laughs> for elderberry syrup. I want people to drink this stuff because I want them <laughs> to be saved from the flu. The flu is no fun. Church, there's something else that I want people to be saved from that's indescribably more important. I want people to be saved from a life of futility and fear. I want people to discover God's purpose for their lives. I want people to hear and respond to the gospel and realize that in Christ they get a new record, a new identity, and a new potential. And here's the deal. God has given us this incredible privilege and this incredible responsibility of sharing the message of the gospel with other people because we care about them. Look at this verse. Well, there's a picture of elderberry syrup. All right. Just in case. Somebody told me first service that they make this at home. They're going to bring me some. So. But look at this verse. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, church, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. And notice 
how Paul goes on. We are therefore Christ's what? His ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. When you share the gospel with somebody, God is making his appeal through you. We implore you in Christ's happy, reconciled to God. Listen, if somebody saved your life, would you tell that story? Of course you would. Well, listen, if you're a Christian, you have a story to tell because somebody has saved your life. And church, listen, on a very practical level, we've got Easter coming up. And we don't just have to wait till Easter to do this. But I want to encourage you to invite someone to come to this place to hear the story of the person who saved your life and mine. Now, I want to do this. I want to show you this short video because, you know, sometimes inviting people to church can seem a bit awkward. You're not sure what to say. Um, let's, let's look at um, a guy who's inviting his friend to come to church this Easter. Let's take a look. You want to go to church with me on Easter? Mm, you know, I already went at Christmas time, but um, okay. Great. Just tell me the date. April Fool's. So you don't want me to go to church with you? I, I just asked you. You did, sorry. Just, just tell me the date. April Fool's. Okay, I need you to be serious right now. What? I'm being serious. I, I want you to go to church with me on Easter. April Fool's. No, I'm not going to fall for this. So the answer to your invite is no, I'm not going to go to church with you on Easter. What, what are you doing? I, I want you to go to church with me. I think you'll really like it. Let me guess, April Fool. Yes! No. Please. No. Wow. Okay. I'll go. Great. April Fool's. Exactly. No, I was just playing along. What are you talking about? Aren't you playing a joke on me? No, I am inviting you to go to church with me on Easter. Okay. I'll go. Great. Pick you up at eight. April Fool's. When is Easter? Easter is on Sunday, April 1st. April Fool's Day. Okay, that is how not to invite somebody to come to church on April 1st. But here's what I want you to do. We've got some guys in the back, and guys, you can start passing out those baskets. We've got some cards. These are actually invitation cards that has the times of the services, um, where the church is located. And I want to invite you, as those baskets come down your row, if you're serious about inviting somebody, would you take a card or two or three? And, and do this, pray, and ask God, who should I invite? And pray that God will put a yes in their heart, and then come to church and meet them on Easter Sunday. And I want to ask you to do this. While the service is going on, pray for the person that you invited, that God would open their heart to begin a relationship with Jesus that changes their life forever. And church, as those cards are continuing to be passed out, I want to show you one more video. It's really a story about how our compassion can change the lives of other people. Let's take a look.
Would you pray with me this morning? Father, that's so true that together we can change the story by telling your story. And Father, I pray now that you would give us the, the desire, Father, the courage to invite people to come to this place on Easter. And Father, I do pray that you would fill the seats in this place with people who, who need to hear about Jesus. And Father, we are people who need to hear about Jesus all the time. Father, thank you that at the cross we find redemption and relationships and responsibility. And Lord, thank you this morning that the cross strengthens our confidence in your love, that it strengthens our conviction of sin, and God, it strengthens our compassion for other people. So Lord, as we sing this last song, I pray that it really would be a celebration of what happens at the cross, a place where you bid us come and die and find that we might truly live. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.